how do you think about how to specialize? Do you choose what you're best at now? Do you do something more entrepreneurial where you think there might be more opportunity, but you're not good at it now? But if you feel like if you focus on it now, you can get good at it and then start getting that greater opportunity. How do you balance those two things against each other? The answer, by the way, to that is mostly about your relationship to risk. This is Show Your Business Who's Boss. Listen in on behind-the-scenes, unfiltered conversations with my favorite business owner friends who take charge and make their businesses work for them. Don't just be your own boss. Show your business who's boss. I'm Pia Silva. On today's episode, I have badass business owner Philip Morgan. Philip is an expert on experts. He works with independent consultants to help them hone their specialization, cultivate their expertise, and monetize their IP. His book, The Positioning Manual for Indie Consultants, has helped thousands transform their businesses. I met Philip years ago, and I was really excited to have a reason to get him on this podcast. And in the process of hearing what he was up to, we ended up having a really interesting conversation about building authority and building expertise, how to find your niche and your positioning, and what it takes to build this kind of expert business, as well as a lot of some self-psychoanalysis in the process. So I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. So buckle up. Here we go. I haven't seen you. I haven't spoken to you in a while, but I hear your name every once in a while. You are definitely out there doing things that are very related. And you just published a book. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. How's that going? Is that, is that your first book? I want to say 2015, I wrote the first version of this book and published it as an info product, meaning the distribution was off my website and I mm -hmm. used uh, deep, Get DPD. You know, mm -hmm. it's like Sam Card, it's like Gumroad, it's like a lot of those things where you can just sell a digital thing yourself. Like I sold around 2,000 copies and because the pricing was like $50 for the book, $99 for the book plus bonus content, and then a higher price tier that involved a consultation, I made like lifetime earnings for that were like a little over $100,000. You know, the book kind of got iterated along the way and then I said, I want this to look like a legitimate business book. <laughs> not a self-distributed info product. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'll, I mean, there's advantages to both. So making it look like a legit business book involves a better cover, better layout, usually offering a print version in addition to an electronic version and selling it on Amazon, really. Uh, I mean, there's other ways you can do that. But for me, that was the lowest barrier of entry to this looks legit. And... Pia, the, the experience of doing it this way is completely different. I know you have a book, and so maybe, I don't know which of these approaches you've taken, maybe both. Well, the one you just did, I took that. So I want to know what's the difference for you, because it's obviously, I mean, selling it for $50 with the upsell and all of that, I mean, it, you're saying it's like less legit, but it's like way easier to make money that way. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's a, there's a fair bit to say about this. I'm in the middle of it. So we, we can talk about this as yeah. much as you want. I don't know. I Have you ever had an experience where the first time was easy and then subsequent times were a lot harder? It's the same basic game you're playing, but you just, maybe you didn't get lucky. Maybe you just weren't self-conscious the first time. 
I, I want to know. Maybe even, maybe you're I, lucky all the time. <laughs> no, no. I feel like the opposite. It never goes right the first time or the second that's time. That's better. Or the third time. I think that's better. Yeah, I better. can see that. I, I'll say having only, in terms of a book, having only okay. done the second one, but I have also sold lots of info products. Okay. I wouldn't say this is doing one thing two different ways. I would say it's doing two different things. Like a, an info product book is not a book. It's an info, pro you know, I mean, it's like mm -hmm. selling a course. It's like selling, they're just different. I wouldn't that's compare them. That's such a my good point. point. Yeah, I think you're right. And maybe that's why <laughs> distributing through Amazon feels so much harder. And maybe I'm just saying it's just so different. You know, how do you dis determine an audience size, right? Like I have around 2,000 people on an email list. You keep hearing my name everywhere. So there's, you know, it, maybe it's bigger than folks on my email list. But, you know, just getting, I'm trying to get to 40 reviews for the book because that's a mental milestone. Not that it means anything in particular. Although you'll hear that number thrown around like, oh, you know, when you get to that level, that's some threshold of credibility in terms of reviews. I don't think people's minds work that way, but... Anyway, that's a milestone. I for think me. they do. I think reviews are critically important. It's one of yeah. the things I tell people when they publish. It's all about getting a lot of reviews as quickly as possible. What's the number for you where it sort of moves from amateur well, to professional world? Mine was a hundred, and that was my goal as quickly as possible. But I, I pounded the pavement before, during, and after the launch to get that hundred reviews. If I had to ask five people for every one review, then that's what I was going to do <laughs> yeah. because it was so important to me because to your point, it wasn't that the book isn't, you don't make money off the book. Yeah, you can make money off the book. Mm -hmm. I've actually ended up making quite, uh, quite a bit of money consistently, but not a hundred thousand dollars by any means, but that's not what the book is for. The yeah, book is to exactly. sell the other thing. Right. So I, emailed everybody who had bought a copy of the info product version of the book. And that was around 2,000 people. Just 500 of those addresses were no good anymore. <laughs> I know these of numbers course. are interesting to people. Of course. No, they so really I'll share are. Thank you. Some of the numbers. Yes. And I said, here's a copy of the new book. You know, when you distribute for folks who don't know through Amazon, um, it's not an exclusive thing unless you choose to make it that way. So you can sell the book elsewhere. You can give it away for free. So I said, here's a copy of the book. And, you know, please leave a review. And I had some follow-up to that as well. It wasn't just a one-time thing. Maybe that yielded 10 reviews out of like 1,500 people. That offer, you just I'm shook your surprised. head. I know folks listening to the podcast can't oh, right. see that. <laughs> uh, you know, no, no, I'm shaking my head because that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. The, I think the difference, I don't know where I got this from. Somebody must have told me this, was that I in the beginning, I, I personally went back and forth with people asking mm -hmm. for reviews. It was a it was a one to one conversation for every <laughs> review because yeah, that, the the email list is hard. That's tough. There's such a drop off there. That five to one ratio. I mean, it's not scientific, of course, but that sounds about right. You know, I'm still getting close to forty. A hundred seems like wow. That's going to be amazing. You'll get Someday. there, Philip. You need a. You need a. Well, uh, there's another thing that I um, did that yields me reviews. Has been getting me reviews ever since. Which is the the follow up, which I'm sure you have. There's the download inside the book, and then the mm -hmm. emails that you get after, and the requests for the review 
thereafter. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I get reviews every, you know, once in a while. <laughs> but it's automated, <laughs> at least. Yeah, there's that part that's not, that's the part I'm in. So you're checking yeah. sales numbers. You're like, oh, I sold two copies today. And, you know, you think back to, I think as you pointed out, inappropriately, you think back to, oh, the previous version of this book, not really, the whole different, totally different business dynamics version <laughs> of the product. And you're like, that would have been $100. And you're like, oh, that's $14 at, you know, the the rough average is yeah. about uh, $7 in royalty per book. That's across pr- uh, print and Kindle for me. Right. So again, it's not for that purpose. But we compare the stuff that's easy to compare, right? Not <laughs> not necessarily the stuff that matters, or it's hard to yeah. you know the things that are hard to measure. Incomparable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, you don't make money from books. That's hard. Oh man, what a what a bar you started with. What a bar you set. I think that for things to not work the first time and the second time would be if I could choose that would be the better sort of norm or average is like okay because you build resilience um, a little bit of mental toughness and you're not feeling like your second effort is outshone by your first effort that just I I feel like people who get successful too early in life maybe have some of that going on absolutely Steve and I talk about this all the time because we both know a lot of people born with a silver spoon and it's it's I, I see them struggle I see them struggle because they're. You live you know, in New York, where there's probably a lot more of that. There's a lot of it, and and at college and stuff. I just saw people who were raised very wealthy and yeah. never given the chance to build the grit. And it's not that they're there's nothing wrong with their lives. They have beautiful yeah. lives, but I can see that there's kind of a like. I mean, maybe I'm projecting, but there's like they didn't get to make it themselves, and that's a really fulfilling part of it to me what's the story they tell themselves this sort of self-critical story oh gosh i don't know they they won't go there yeah it's more just kind of like a general a general vibe of like you know kind of like because when the bar is set so high everything below that feels like failure yeah even though everything below that is actually super successful, it's like hard to feel that success yeah. if you if you didn't have the struggle part, like you're saying. I think so. But that's why I'm saying this is such an interesting framing because there, you did not. This is not the second time you've published this book. <laughs> this is the first time you published this book, and also you had a really successful info product that you sold. Yeah. I think that's my 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 perception of it. One thing I've heard said by, uh, who's the, the ego, the Ryan holiday is the best (laughs) marketing for your book is the last book you wrote. I don't actually know what he means by that (laughs) because it's a sort of like, almost like a Zen Cohen kind of saying, but I think what he's saying is that every book you add to your uh, catalog as an author as like a you know self-published or traditionally published author, it makes it easier for someone to buy the next book when they see that you've written two or three books. It becomes mm. easier for them to say, yeah, I'll take a chance on this. Or it looks like this person is worth paying attention to. If he's right, 
then that adds weight to what you're saying, which is, yeah, it's it's the first time. And maybe now that I think about this, I hadn't thought about this Pia, until we started talking about it. For this to feel like a struggle is good because this is, you know, right. quote unquote, the first book. Yeah. And that means the second one can't be this hard. <laughs> I say that somewhat <laughs> optimistically. <laughs> well, I got a really uh, good piece of advice from Mike Michalowicz, actually, when I published my first book. I asked him, what's your best piece of advice? Because I loved how he, you know, and he just said, just realize you're always selling your book now. Mm -hmm. Like, you're always selling your book <laughs> wherever you go, because your book is the entryway to everything else. So mm -hmm. all you got to do is just get it into people's hands, get people to read it, get them excited to read it. And I really took that to heart. And really, I did a, a book bub, which you, it's hard to track how successful it was. But I know I got people on my list from it. Do you know book bub? I've heard of book, it. Uh, yeah. But I don't, do, I don't know enough details. They have like a big, they, they do, you offer your book on there. If they accept you, you apply and they accept it. Mm -hmm. I applied to have it as a uh, like as a special. So they'll mm -hmm. do like a three day special and you, they offer your book to their huge list for, you know, 99 cents or whatever. They mm -hmm. did not take my book at that. And then I offered it for free. They'll do a free one. Okay. And they did accept that one. And I got 20,000 downloads. Now, oh, who wow. are these people? Right. It's not. This is not targeted. Like this is, mm -hmm. I'm sure, I'm sure, nineteen thousand of them didn't read it. <laughs> um, you know, but but some of the people that read it did end up on my list. So it was kind of, but to me, it was like doesn't matter. You know, mm -hmm. I just want this book to be as much out there as possible because it's about why did you do it in the first place, Philip? Mm -hmm. Like why did you decide to do this? You wanted to get your name out there, and you wanted to build that. You wanted that credibility, and that's all it needs to do. So. Yeah. yeah. The kind of thinking I was doing was like, how do I make this more accessible? Mm. You can self-pirate your book, you know, put it up on BitTorrent. You can do stuff like that. But it just felt like this, the biggest single one thing I could do is just say, this is like a normal business book. It's priced the way normal business books are. <laughs> it's packaged the way normal business books are. I felt like it would get me access to another audience. But this is a project that is measured in years, not months. Maybe yeah. decades. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I I went to this um, su summit years ago. It was called How to Market Your Business with a Book and a Speech. Mm -hmm. Henry De DeVries. 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 It was great. Uh, this guy there gave, showed this little book. It's a really little book. Mm -hmm. uh, like physically know, small. Sure. It was like 10,000 words, I think. And But it was a hardcover, small book, physically and mm -hmm. not long. Um, and he held it up and he said, I wrote this book like 25 years ago and this book has sold, you know, tens of thousands of copies and continues to make me money and is the thing that I walk around giving speeches with, selling my book at the back of the room and using to build, you know, to get consulting clients and all my mm -hmm. clients. And when he said that, I was like, wow, a book you wrote 20 years ago is still helpful to you. He was like, once you have the book, you always have the book. It's great. And I just loved that. You know, I loved the idea that you can just keep selling it and keep and it'll always bring new people in. So, yeah, you're mm -hmm. at the beginning of that journey. That's exciting. It is.
It is. <laughs> you sound um, excited. Yeah, I know there's this <laughs> other um, message in my voice, which is, you know, it's, it's kind of tiring and it can be a slog, but it, it is also exciting. I read this book by Rob Fitzpatrick called Write Useful Books. Okay. That is a strong recommend for me, by the way, for oh, okay. listeners. Uh, write, write Useful Books, Rob books. Fitzpatrick. Okay. And th they had this idea that seems so simple. I was thinking about this book as when it's published, it somehow gets locked. Like the Constitution of the United States, it's like put under glass and you can't touch it. <laughs> that was sort of how I was thinking about it. And that's not the case at all. You can very easily, you know, have a better cover made and upload that. And now that's the new cover of your book. So you can take this approach of progressively making it better. So that's also something I think about as I think about the life of this book is there's lots of opportunities to fix stuff. When you're doing print on demand, there's, you're, you're not leaving any sunk cost if you make a change to the book. Yeah, that's a great point. I have been meaning to update my book, actually. For oh, what are years. you going to do? <laughs> Content, I mean, new cover. Re read it again and see what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Remember if I still think that. No, I definitely still think most of it, but I think maybe, I, I mean, you know, my prices were at a certain point when I wrote that book. Like, I, I have so much more to share. And the question mm. is, do I update the book or do I write a new book? Um, but writing a new book is a pain in the butt, you know? And it's something I want to do, but you need a lot of time, needs care. So to mm. your point, I like what you're saying. It's the reason I, I don't think that way. That's why I haven't done, I haven't touched it or written a new book because I feel hmm. the opposite. <laughs> I don't, I'm yeah. scared to do the incremental, you know, I can't get in there and start changing things. I mean, I could update a, a little thing here or there, but. Does it feel like a, a Jenga tower? Like you pull out yeah, the wrong thing. Like, and it... <laughs> yes. Yes. I think so. Okay. Listen, I feel like we've done a really good job building anticipation about this book. Tell us about your book. It's called The Positioning Manual for Indie Consultants. And the latest review says, this book is not just for indie consultants. They're right. But I believe in, <laughs> in having a, a temporarily excessively narrow focus so that you can build up momentum. You can get started. Yes. You can be heard. You can cut through the noise. So in a way, the book is kind of about that. It's meant to help folks think about how you make this decision. It's meant to sort of help people be their own positioning consultant. And it's meant to partially sell them on the idea and help them buy into the idea that narrowing down what you do is not going to cut off opportunities that you need. Yeah, it's available in Kindle and print. I think someone said they were able to read the whole thing through in like two hours, maybe two My to three hours. similar. So that's intentional, yeah. So you help people really position, can I use the word niche? Is it about helping them find that niche? That's the idea of the book mm -hmm. is when we make that decision, we're a lot of times we're trying something new. So our attention is on what we're going to give up. And so part of what I'm trying to do is help people understand what they gain. It's, it's just so much easier to focus on what you're going to lose because you're familiar with that intimately. So you're like, oh... Uh, when I do a sales call, I get this rush of excitement because I don't know what the prospect's going to say. And it's exciting and I kind of improvise. And that's, for a lot of folks, that's fun for a while. Um, that's a nice way to put it. I think a lot of folks don't feel that way. 
can. Well, they're oh. ready. Those folks are ready <laughs> oh, for like this it. transition. But um, yeah. early on, I think there is a sort of like it, it affirms that you're good at thinking on your feet, et cetera, if you thrive in that situation. It's, um, you know, every sales call is improv night. Some people hear that and they're like, oh, cool. You know, improv night every time they get to talk to a prospective client. Other folks are, oh, God, that sounds terrible. I'm tired of that or I'm not good at that. Anyway, it's easy to know that you're giving that up. And for some folks, that feels like a loss. For other folks, they're like, I don't I want to give that up. It's like losing weight. I would love to lose that weight. <laughs> I don't want to be carrying it around. So it's easy to focus on what we're losing. It's less easy to know what you what we're gaining. So part of the book is is that. And then part of it is how do you think about how to specialize? Do you choose what you're best at now? Do you do something more entrepreneurial where you think there might be more opportunity, but you're not good at it now, but you, you feel like if you focus on it now, you can get good at it and then start getting that greater opportunity. How do you balance those two things against each other? That's a, that's a pretty clear, specific example of the kind of conversation that I'm having in this book. The answer, by the way, to that is mostly about your relationship to risk. So if you're kind of risk-seeking and you, you can handle a fair bit of risk, then you have more specialization options available to you. Ooh, I have never heard it put that way. That is super interesting, using your own risk tolerance to decide which strategy to use. I think the mistake that I made early on when I was giving people advice about specialization was to assume that everyone had a really high risk tolerance. And so where that leads you is, okay, how you should specialize is look at all the options that are out there and choose the one that's going to pay off the best. Well, in some cases, that could require you to, to uh, sacrifice some short-term income to you know, build up credibility or access. We're t we've been you know, talking a lot about a book. Books don't write themselves, <laughs> okay? So it's a big investment, yeah. Time, yeah, time and money investment up front for sure. Right. So, would you trade revenue now to spend time writing a book, knowing that the book is the linchpin to you getting access to some new opportunity? Some people are like, "Yeah, I'll take that deal any day of the week," and other people say, "Well, what if the book doesn't do well?" You know, I kind of need the money now, about to have a kid in four months, and I really need to build up savings now. So those real-world considerations about how much risk you can actually embrace, they matter, When I think, when people are specializing. The risk thing matters, and that was why I gave a lot of bad advice earlier in my career as an advisor about this stuff. I just assumed everyone could accept the amount of risk that a young person with no kids <laughs> – and good backup plans could could accept. And not everybody's like that. You know, some people are thinking about this in their 40s or 50s, and their risk configuration is totally different. Okay, so this is so interesting because I think of myself as a pretty, I have a high risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. um, I go for things pretty quickly, but I think the opposite. <laughs> I think uh, of other people, oddly. And not because I think they're dissimilar to me. It's just that when I help people with their niching, I usually, I just go straight to the, well, who have you worked with? Well, who right. have you worked with? Where, where, like, I always tell people, actually, 
listeners, you've probably heard me say this before, you know, go look at the real world data. Who have you worked with? Where is the money come in? What did you enjoy? Where do you have value to offer? Oftentimes, if you really look at those things, there's a clear niche and that's where you should focus. And it didn't, you know, when people and only when people don't have any sort of possible answer there, do I say, look, you can hypothesize about an opportunity to your Mm -hmm. point. There's a hole in the market. I can see an opportunity here. Fine. And then I just tell them, but you can't pick that as a niche until you go work in those pe- with those people. You have to go get the real world data, go work with them, and then they become your previous experience that you can then say, yes, I worked with them. I enjoyed it. It was valuable. They paid me all of that. Now I can niche into that. And I guess that seems a little bit like I'm assuming people don't, won't take, don't have high risk tolerance, even though I do. Do you? Would you? How do you th- see yourself? So there's two parts to risk. One, <clears throat> there's three. There's your comfort with uncertainty. There's your ability to uh, sustain a loss. And then your, there's your comfort with uh, volatility. So uh, those are actually the three parts of risk tolerance. And so for me, like my ability to sustain loss is relatively low my comfort with uncertainty is relatively high, hmm. which is a, it's, it's kind mix. of like a weird <laughs> mix. You'll see the opposite as well, by the way, and it's fascinating. It's, there are people who have a very low comfort with uncertainty. Because of that, they've conducted themselves in a way that insulates them against a lot of loss. They have a lot of savings. They have good backup plans because they hate uncertainty. Right. And so they hedge against that with, you know, lots of business savings, et cetera, choosing really sure thing, opportunities, that kind of thing. So it's really interesting when you start to break risk down into those components. And and of course, the ideal thing from a risk perspective is you're very comfortable with uncertainty, you can sustain lots of loss, and volatility doesn't freak you out. Anyway, I'm a little, I'm more risk tolerant than most of my clients in terms of the business choices I make, in terms of like stuff like bungee jumping or (laughs) things that put you at physical harm, I'm pretty risk averse. But um, yeah, business choices, like I, I do something super duper specific and I think there's going to be more demand in the future than there is now. So in a way, I'm sort of placing a bet or a gamble oh, wow. on the growth of what it is that I do. But if, if you wanted one approach that is the least likely to go wrong, it's what you're talking about. Look for the head start that you have and build on that. Don't try something unproven. Yeah, maybe that's why I like to give that advice because I want I want, you want to your advice to work. Most sure. <laughs> yeah, I want my advice to work. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. what it is. Does Does your book? It sounds like your book talks. Maybe this is just one point, but does your book talk a lot about risk? How did you end up knowing, thinking about? I mean, this is such a fascinating positioning of this conversation. How did you end up? thinking about this so much? Do you talk about this a lot? Is it in your book a lot? Or we just happen to be talking about one point that touches on this? Well, I um, started caring about this because I gave a lot of bad advice (laughs) earlier on. (laughs) It didn't work as much as I wanted it to. It's interesting because I think this is what happens when people specialize, not this exact thing, but this pattern that we're talking about. When you specialize, Mm -hmm. you, um, you start getting more opportunity not automatically, but it makes it easier to get more and better opportunity. And that's awesome. And you go through a few years of like, wow, this is amazing. 
I would have never had access to this kind of opportunity had I not specialized. And then, you know, you keep getting those better and better opportunities, but with them comes more complexity sometimes and more challenge. And I find that a lot of folks have this dip where things suddenly stop working as well as they used to be. And it's because they've gotten access to more complex situations and to actually thrive in those situations, they have to pick up some complementary skills. So for me, that was thinking about how humans relate to risk. It is a topic I talk about in the book. And I do, I mean, I talk about it with people anytime it comes up because I think it's, I think it's just a big part of business decision making is understanding your relationship to risk. Hey guys, I wanted to jump in here really quickly and ask you for a little favor. If you are loving this episode, please just take 60 seconds and leave it a review right now. Reviews help other people find us so we can help more people show their businesses who's boss. I thank you in advance for your help. All right, back to the show. Now that you're saying that, different word, but now I kind of see how it it is highly related. I've always thought that most people subconsciously, unconsciously make most of their decisions in their business and their life based on their fears, right? Avoiding this, avoiding that. You don't really notice it, but your your mind is just naturally avoiding things that you're scared of. And so you end up contorting into all of these different places. And that really could, I'd have to think more about it, but I feel like I can see how that is a close relative of your risk tolerance. I think it's very related. You know, if someone's visiting a a city for the first time and choosing a place to eat out and they really feel like this needs to be an amazing meal, I think they're going to narrow their range of choices to try to make sure it's a really good meal. So, I mean, there's two ways to look at that. One is they don't like the uncertainty of of not knowing for sure that it's going to be a good meal or they're afraid of it being a bad meal. To me, those are two sides of the same coin. Why are they afraid of it being a bad meal? I don't know. They just really want it to be a good meal. (laughs) It's right. It's important. There's a lot on this because I'm on this trip and I only have so many meals. How do you choose a restaurant when you're traveling? (laughs) Well, I'm on this weird (laughs) diet. So... Um, that would factor in. But to answer your question, uh, I would do some research. I would not be the person who is l- like touring someplace around mealtime and says, okay, that restaurant. I would want to do some research. Oh, not only that, <laughs> this is where it gets into weird Philip stuff. I just, I don't even want to have to sit there and look at the menu and decide what to eat. I want to already have made that decision. <laughs> So I want to look at the menu and just decide what I'm going to get because I hate being there in that moment and feeling like I haven't made up my mind. What Gosh, do you do? That seems like the complete opposite of your high risk tolerance in your business. I know. Or yeah. is it this? Is it is it actually very similar because you make these choices that may seem risky, but you go forward with them so with so much conviction. No, I I think it's a different style. I I just think that no one has like one sort of setting for their risk tolerance across everything. You know, I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, in terms of like, I don't want to get injured. I don't, I've never had to go into a hospital. I mean, I've walked in a hospital, I've never been admitted to a hospital. And for some reason, like, I'm like, I want that streak to continue the rest of my life. (laughs) I know that's ridiculous. 
<laughs> you know, that shows up as a very low phys- like physical harm to right. the body risk tolerance. But on the other hand, I'm like, well, you know, why shouldn't you take risks with businesses? Like that's kind of what they're for. And so that's a particular I, perspective on my business that I don't apply to others. I did apply that to others and, you know, cause I was like, yeah, go for it. And it didn't work out. And I hate that. So I have to respect their risk tolerance when I'm thinking about giving advice to others. But uh, for me, I'm just like, well, I feel like a business is a vehicle for experimentation. Yes, it's it's there to make money, but that's, I think, a byproduct of doing other things right. I don't know, you tell me, but I think you'll see a lot of folks are uh, maybe have a portfolio approach to risk-taking. You know, they're more risk-taking in some areas and less and less so in others. It's not the same across everything. Uh, it, it has to be that way. That's probably how you mitigate your risk is by yeah. being risky in one place and less risky in another place. Yeah, um, I have a certain amount of emotional energy and sure. not more than that. So how do I right. do, divide up that budget? That's that's a good way to think of it. Yeah. And you're you're making me realize also, like to your point earlier, I'm I feel more comfortable being more risky with my own business and not at all with other people's businesses. No, I want to tell you something I already know works and right. I'm okay with things not working, but I'm not okay with things not working for you <laughs> based on my advice. So yeah. I'll just tell you what's tried and true. Yeah. I mean, I'm it, okay. I want us both to say, I'm sorry that was bad advice and it didn't work. I apologize. Okay. Ready? Three, two, one. I'm sorry. I'm that was sorry bad, that's advice. bad advice and it didn't and I, work. And it didn't work. I and apologize. I apologize. <laughs> How's that feel to say that? It feels terrible. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's pretty, pretty awful. Oh. Yeah. No, obviously. You hire us. I want to <laughs> I want to make you I want to make you more successful than me. To, to your question, I have an interesting I have a very strong opinion about the travel thing. Let's hear it. I want to hear it. Well, I the way that we travel, Steve and I, luckily it matches up. Jeez. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> really rough if it didn't. Is that uh we both don't like to do anything that you're supposed to do when you're traveling. Okay. I don't like any sort of, um, hello, worst of all design. I don't like feeling any sort of obligatory thing when I'm traveling. Therefore, Steve and I have traveled mostly. We go somewhere and we like to stay there long enough that we can accidentally bump into the best stuff Mm -hmm. because I don't like to plan things and I like it to be spontaneous because my experience of that has always been when you find the cool stuff, it's so much cooler. Now, I have been traveling where I've met up with friends who are the opposite. They've read everything. We have to go here and we have to go there. And we go with them, of course. But we're like, there's just like, yeah, this is good. There's just no way this can be as cool as this other place that maybe actually wasn't as good. But the experience of like, we found like we we found this place in Spain, like, literally drove on this winding road. I don't even know why we, it was like the hotel was like some, some Airbnb we booked and happened upon this like idyllic place in the mountains that I had never heard of, would never hear of. How cool. If I had gone there, like we got to go see for Hiliana in Spain, it would have been like, yeah, this is another cute little town. And, and I have this feeling of that being the part that makes it special for me. So I have also ended up in a lot of places that are not, 
you know, that suck. But I believe that like the sucky places are what makes the other places so cool. <laughs> so I, I don't hope, know. What I is hope, that? <laughs> well, I hope listeners hear in that, oh, Pia has a high tolerance for uncertainty. You're on you're on this trip. You've got a sort of limited but time budget, perhaps, with the trip. You have to Well, be that's back why I try to make date. them longer. <laughs> yeah. Right. But yeah. still it's it's fixed. It's always limited. Yep. It's like having money in the bank and you're going to spend it in ways where you're not sure how it's going to turn out. That's a high tolerance for uncertainty. And um, that's awesome. And imagine someone feeling that way about their business. Like I really focus, you'll notice when I talk about risk, I focus on uh, you can sustain a loss or harm. That That's part of your risk tolerance. The flip side of that is you get to find that amazing place in the mountains in Spain, but in your business, yes. that's the flip side. I'd, and folks might notice that I don't, I don't talk about that at all because I'm trying to protect people mm. against an undesirable outcome. That's why I talk about risk. But there, that's the flip side. That's why we take risks is because it might be amazing. There might be a payoff. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I do not look at my business like that. I don't have that same sort of like – I, I probably take a lot of the steps as if I do, mm-hmm. but I, but the whole time I'm like, <gasps> I'm like <holding> my, <laughs> you're white knuckling it. Yeah, I am. I'm like jumping off the bungee cord cliff. Like uh-huh. <gasps> I'm going right. to hit the floor. Don't hit the floor. Don't hit the floor. I mean, I'm not inside your yeah, head, but, I think- but why do the bungee jump if there's not a potential upside? Well, I, I I think I'm not I, I'm saying that the approach, the uh-huh. emotional approach is different than the than the travel one, which oh, is okay. like a, it's a, okay, so we ended up in this place and it totally sucked for a day or two or this meal sucked, but you know, mm-hmm. but then it's like, but we also had this thing and it was amazing, which is a very okay, either way, like the the bad helps the good and you know, it's a great experience and it's very memorable. Whereas the business part and even though, you know, I coach people on this stuff, I'm like, look, like success is not a straight line. You know, you, you, you can only hit those high successes if you're willing to test things and they will fail. And that's where yeah. you learn. And of course, and I'm doing that, you know, I'm failing all the yeah, time, <laughs> trying things, failing all the time. But the whole time I'm like, okay, another failure. Let's keep going. Like we will get there, you know, which is not the same like, um, lightness of the, it doesn't matter. Like we're, 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 this trip is going to be amazing no matter what. We will end up having the amazing meals and seeing the amazing places and, you know, some of the stuff. This is what comes with it. And I, I really hope that this conversation actually like helps me have more of that lightness in my business. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the struggle's real. i it's, it affects <laughs> me too. Um, one of the things that is worth adding to the mix here is this idea that, the world of business exists across the spectrum from really, really figured out on the one end to really not figured out on the other end. You know, if someone needs a, a will written up, they're going to go to an attorney and get a will. That stuff is pretty figured out in terms of how you do that. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to throw attorneys under the bus here, but it's okay. I, I don't imagine there's a lot of creativity that's being brought to the fore when someone is writing a will. For someone else, it's and I'm not I'm not saying it's totally mechanical and brainless either, but it's it's figured out. Like you know, there's sort of best practices about how to do a goodwill. 
there's a lot of places where there's not best practices about any of it because it's new and it's being figured out. And so and it's changing and, and it's, it's changing constantly changing. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. So those areas, I think, reward risk-taking and they're more open to outsiders because there's not like an established hierarchy or there's not a way things are done here. Yes. And so that's another element of the specialization decision is, do you want to specialize in something where things are kind of figured out and your task is maybe building a better widget machine? And again, I don't mean that in a dismissive way. There are people who have, you know, way nicer cars and houses than I do because <laughs> they're building a better widget machine and, and that's how they make money right. is, you know, making widgets 10% cheaper than someone else and more consistently. That's great. That can be a good business. And that exists in the world of services as well. Not just I'm using a product metaphor, but mm -hmm. it exists in the world of services. And then there's businesses where, I mean, coaching is a bit like this. You know, someone shows up and it's like, what are the best practices for coaching? <laughs> That particular person, there there are none because it's you and that person, and that's a totally unique combination. That's another thing to think about is where are you going to thrive in terms of how figured out things are. Interesting. Well, so what do you, what does your business look like right now, and how is it embracing your particular style of <laughs> risk risk taking? I guess. There's a couple things I offer. They're really for people who, I, I think the people who get the most out of them are on that. They're focused in something that's less figured out. There's a client of mine, Guillaume, who's in a thing I do called the Expertise Incubator. And Guillaume has invented a framework for business storytelling. That's a good example. Like uh, business storytelling is a thing. It's a thing that, you know, people have some awareness of. And, you know, Guillaume has looked at this space and said, I think we can do better here. And here's my gift to you all, a framework for thinking about how to craft a narrative for your business. That's a really good example of that. Like, that's not a totally figured out space. There's not just one way to do that. And so people who are trying to do that kind of thing with their business, I think I can help them because I understand them. <laughs> I don't think that what they're doing is too risky. I mean, it might be for them, but it's not universally too risky. Somebody's got to do that work mm -hmm. of figuring out how to do business storytelling in a somewhat systematic way. Why not? Guillaume has nominated himself for that. So that, like, that's just an example, just to give a story of one client. That's actually a great reminder for anyone, because I think like it's easy to forget how much of the how much Wild West there is out there, you know, before before Goom, Goom mm -hmm. came along and created that. There's whoever else was talking about storytelling mm -hmm. for business. And yeah, then, he's not the first. Yeah. <laughs> but and. And when he really owns it and builds that platform and builds that framework and puts it out there, somebody else will look and say, oh, it's been done by him. Mm -hmm. And they will have to decide whether or not there's space or whether or not they have the risk tolerance to say, and I'm also going to make my own mm -hmm. version of it. And as I look at people as they should, and I recommend people do, you know, in the expert world, find that big idea that's theirs and really go all in on it. 
there's an element of needing to believe, you know, there, I can create a space here. Like the space isn't there until I create it. And then I say, this is how, you know, this is another way. And it could be almost like a standardized way of doing something. I mean, that's, isn't that what like building a brand is? <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. I think of it as you're giving the world something to buy into that's a little bigger than you, a little bigger than them. I mean, do you ever just kind of stand back and marvel at the audacity of someone showing up and saying, I don't quite like how the world works. <laughs> I want to see it work different. So I'm going to, you know, contribute something I see as an improvement to how the world works. It's just so bold and amazing that people have it in them to do that. I love working with people like that. I think everybody has that in them somewhere. I think it's, but there's a lot of stuff over it that stops most people from either seeing it or being willing to like uncover it and put it out there. Is it the fears or is it, what do you see standing in the way? I see, uh, sure, fears. I see like stories from long ago <laughs> telling mm -hmm. you what you have to say doesn't matter or what you have to say is not that important or, mm -hmm. you know, you're not them. I, I mean, you know, so many people talk about imposter syndrome. Like, I think that that's, you know, why is imposter syndrome so prevalent and how does it show up? I think it shows up by hiding people's ability to create that thing that is theirs. I mean, that's what I've observed. I don't know. What about you? Yeah. I mean, I want to believe that everybody has that in them. You know, I think it's easier to say, well, someone else can figure that out. That's really risky stuff to try to figure out how things should be done. I'll focus in an area where that's already been figured out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe that's, you know, what a business coach would call playing small or I'm not sure. Uh, but it certainly is easier and life can be hard, <laughs> hard enough as it is to take care of the kids and manage the household and do all the things. So maybe it's more of a trade-off is maybe how I see it is like some folks are um, just not willing to make that trade-off of saying other smarter people have figured this out because I think if they're honest, get a few drinks in them maybe. They're like, there are no other smarter people. I'm smarter than most of those people, at least about this thing. Mm -hmm. So, no, that would be irresponsible for me to let them figure it out. They won't do it as well as I do. That sounds so arrogant to say that, but I, I really do think that is what drives some of us. Mm -hmm. At the end of the days, we're like, maybe it's, it's a sort of strange manifestation of a perfectionism of like, Okay, I have to be in charge of how this small segment of the market, I'll, I'll pick on you, Pia, um, mm -hmm. thinks about branding because mm -hmm. no one else can tell them how to do it right. Or if they're out there, I haven't seen them, so I guess it falls to me to do that. So I, I think there's a little bit of that going on too. A hundred percent. Well, and also in order to really do this work, you have to start drinking your own Kool-Aid. So it kind of perpetuates itself. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and I just want to clarify when I say, I think it's in everybody. I don't want that to come off like everybody has this potential and only some people like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, bring it out or, or, or uh, feed it or whatever. I don't think that means that everybody should. I don't think it means that, yeah, you don't, 
it's that it's not a better way to do it, right? I think I think a lot of things have to line up in your own head and in your own world for it to make sense to go for these things. I think that everybody's got the potential because the path is really embracing and committing to whatever this idea is. Like you, you can decide to commit at any time. You just might not because of all of these other coats on top of your idea that are holding it down. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And so I have a podcast that has been called the Consulting Pipeline Podcast, and I'm renaming it the Self-Made Expert Podcast. Nice. So I talk to people who do this kind of stuff, who they, you know, they do the kind of thing you're talking about, Pia, and then 10, 20 years later, they're considered a leader in their industry. They're, they're a household name in their industry. And it's exactly what you're describing. It's you notice that they are amazing, but when they made that decision, nothing was amazing about that. It just was like, well, no one else is doing this. I'm going to do it. Or, yeah, I think I've got this in me, but there's, you know, 10 reasons I think I don't and one reason I think I do. And I'm just going to pay attention to the one reason I think I do. So I think I agree with you. Like everybody has the potential and it's trade-offs and it's deciding I'm, I'm going to go down this path long enough and serve my industry, my people consistently enough that five, ten years later, you're like, oh, my God, how did you do that? Right. And you talk to them <laughs> and you realize, oh, just by staying true to that decision for long enough to make a difference is how they do it. And they're not – I mean, they are people who – they don't tell me this stuff on the podcast, but, you know, they're people who are not always nice to everybody or they have, you know, they drink a little too much when they drink or they're human beings. That's what I'm saying. They're not superhuman. Yeah. They're not more special. They just chose this path, which I think is a very encouraging idea. I mean, I, yeah. I teach people how to build their authority in, inside my um my program for agencies right. and i and i tell them in the very beginning i'm like what you need to understand is you can absolutely manufacture your own fame it's not that it is hard or that you need to be special you just have to decide that you're going to do it and the reason it's going to make you special is because most people can't they can't commit and they can't stick with it for the long haul but if yeah. you do i promise you you will get there because it's literally just doing all the steps <laughs> and it's yeah. just really hard to do all the steps so luck like for someone like me who's like you know well once i say i'm gonna do something like i'm no backing off there right it's like okay that's what i'm gonna do that's what this that's what my book was i mean that's why my face is on my book you know that was a strate strategic decision what am i doing this book for i'm gonna manufacture my own fame well, then I should put my face on it so that when people are yeah. walking around with my book, my face is on the outside and other people see it. You know, it's like, yeah. that's just a decision. That's not anything special. It's just I'm trying to do that. And I like I want people to know that because it's very easy to look at people who are doing very well and think that they have something you don't. That's not true. Yeah. You're, I noticed you, that was a decision that was not based on how you feel about your face or what you think about your face. That was a decision that was based on a on a goal that was beyond 100%. your thoughts or feelings about your face. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. It's a job that you choose for yourself. It's a job with some weird job duties and requirements <laughs> that yes. you might not have been prepared for in schooling and might seem like a weird job, but it 
at the end of the day, it's just a job. And you could, you could write the job description. And the one that you wrote for yourself said, publish a book that uh, increases my fame within a niche. Okay. Huh. Okay. That's just you doing your job. That's all. <laughs> you just decide to do that. It's simple, but not easy. Sometimes yeah. I had to do a lot of, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, do you do a lot of that kind of more personal inner work? I had to do a ton of personal inner work to get over myself, to put my own face on my book. I mean, I'm, I hated photos. I didn't put any photos of myself online or anything before mm. 2016. Mm. Oh, <laughs> right. Wow. Oh yeah. It was a, it was a switch that I turned and I said, I guess I'm doing this. Yeah. You just, you, you looked at the job requirements. Um, yeah. I don't That's do enough of that, that kind of inner work. It holds me back to not do more of it. It is in some ways the final frontier. One of the things that this reminds me that, um, that I've come, I've realized recently, I have a much simpler answer than I used to for a question. The question is, you know, why, what's the fear that holds people back from specialization? And the answer is they don't believe that there's two lifetimes of opportunity that have their name on them if they will specialize in this way. Mm. And it's, it points to what you're saying. It's, it's a belief about what's possible that holds most people back from specialization. Yeah, there's other stuff too. But at the end of the day, you just don't believe that it's going to make things better. So, you know, the job description I've written for myself includes regularly advocating for this choice and trying to help people realize that, uh, no, they're, it, it can make things better. Nine times out of 10, it does if you do it reasonably well. So is that um, the expertise incubator? Is that what you're helping people like get over their fears, <laughs> build this, build this expertise and do what it takes to, to become an, become an expert, make your, deem yourself an expert, self-made expert. I feel like the best way for me to do that is to kind of get out of the way and, and just give people a task that's easy uh, or that's simple, but not easy. So that program is a nine month thing. There's three challenges. One, the first is for three months, I want folks to Every day they work, publish something on the internet. So every in one day. sentence, I can describe it. Yeah, every day you work. Um, publish something that you think is worth reading on the internet. So for a lot of folks, that's writing to an email list. Some folks will publish to their LinkedIn following. And it's very simple to describe, and it brings up every single emotion, <laughs> every single barrier where you feel like what you have to say is not that valuable. You actually don't know what creates value for other people. You have ideas, but you haven't tested them. You know, you work five days a week. I'm terrible with doing math in my head. Anyway, you know, three, <laughs> uh, three months publishing five days a week. That's a lot of opportunities to try things. And it's an emotional journey, but it's also a journey of getting through the superficial parts of your expertise and getting to the deeper parts. That's the first challenge. The second has to do with executing some small-scale research so you can speak more from data in addition to speaking from your own experience. So, yeah, that's a program that I offer that I love offering because it's not so much about me and my opinions about how things should work. And it's, it's just a context where it's sort of a pressure cooker for people in their, their expertise. And is that where you focus most of your coaching energy, or do you work with people one-on-one? -on -one? Uh, I do work with people one-on-one. -on -one. They can set up a free call with me. 
And then we see if there's any magic. Uh, usually there's not, and it's not their fault. <laughs> it's just, you know, we give it a try. And it's like, well, that was fun. Um, and that's it. And sometimes those turn into coaching relationships. That's a little bit of uh, Rich Litvin's approach to um, cultivating coaching clients. So I have, I think, four a month of those available that folks can sign up for. Who's Rich Litvin? Oh, a Litvin, L-I-T-V-I-N. I kind of mumbled his last name, Rich Litvin. He has this interesting book, Pia, called The Prosperous Coach. And I was wondering if that was him. I read The Prosperous Coach. It says, like, you don't need anything <laughs> to be a coach. Isn't that the one? Yeah, that's yeah. that's the basic message. And it, yeah. it's really good. It's Of course, it's coming from a very specific point of view, which I yeah. love. And the funny thing is I bought that a paper copy of that book, and I, I read the f- whole thing. And I cut out the appendix because I thought that was the valuable part. <laughs> and I threw the rest of it away. <laughs> it just was so satisfying to sort of tear the book in half and throw away the part that I resented having to read because I didn't think it was as valuable as the other part. <laughs> um, anyway, it's a good book. It is worth reading. I would probably start with the appendix if I were most folks. Anyway, so yeah, Prosperous I, Coach. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I like so many books. I kind of like sped read half of it and was like, uh, I get it. Yeah. I that's get how it. a lot of business books are. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you know what? It basically says you j- talking to people like you can, you can build a whole coaching business talking to people and you don't need to have anything fancy and just show up and give value and you will build a thing. And, and what I like about that is not that that's what I think people should do, yeah. but it kind of reminds you that that's at the core of it. And, yeah, if you don't have that, all the yeah. other stuff is not going to help. And you should start with that. I mean, I yeah. I am constantly trying to tell people, you know, I, I teach this whole model with selling the lead product instead of selling proposals. I'm mm-hmm. constantly telling people, I know your website isn't updated. It's totally fine. You do not need a website to sell this. I yeah. already told you how you sell it, and it's through conversations. So. Yeah. Regardless, you know, and they're like, but I need this whole website. I'm like, no, you actually don't want to even explain it on your site because that's not where they're buying it. They're buying it from a connection with you. So, but every people always, you know, think that the stuff is what's going to sell it. Do you think that's us being lazy when we think, oh, the website will do it for me? No, I think it's us letting our fears okay. dictate what we do. <laughs> it's yeah. harder to have conversations. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if my website just did all the work and I didn't have to talk to people or like, you know, put myself out there like the risk, you know, yeah. have the risk of being rejected. And you can I think you you know, you publishing this book that is where you get to get away from as much of that conversation. Now people read your book I'm very looking forward to reading your book, by the way. Um, now, especially because I know I can read it in two hours. So I, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check that out stat quick. But when people read your book, by the time they get to the end, they know you. They trust you. The conversation is completely different. So you can get there, but it's upfront work. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and um, having some validation, that's another thing that's a benefit of what you're talking about is it's harder to fool yourself about what the market thinks when you've had 30, 50 conversations with real people. Good point. 
um, because their words will be kind of echoing in your head. And yeah, they can't always tell you the full unvarnished truth in that context. But, you know, you combine a little self-awareness, a little bit of humility and think back over those conversations and you'll have a pretty clear picture of what the market will and won't do when will and won't spend money for. And that would be a much better basis for writing a book than like an idea that's untested. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, Philip, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. We, Likewise. we took this conversation in all sorts of directions. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Me too. Um, this was a delight. Congratulations again on publishing your first book the first time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Making your amazing digital product into a book so that it was accessible for people. Hmm. And I, guys, anyone's listening, now we all have to write Philip a review, right? Because, <laughs> because um, yes, we've heard the an journey. an honest review. Um, it's pretty skewed towards the four and five star reviews. And maybe that the book really is that good. But if you think it's a three star book, please leave a three star review. You know what I might do for you? You're going to leave a one-star review. <laughs> okay. Do you remember, what's his name? Stephen Colbert published this book about gay bunnies. I don't know if okay. you noticed that it. story when no. it, it was, it's a kid's book. He published okay. a book about gay bunnies and it's like, um, it was like Mike Pence's gay bunny. You know, yeah. it was a very, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, he published it and it went very huge and there were 40,000 reviews on this thing and, you know, mm. lots of haters and obviously mm -hmm. lots of, and I clicked on the one stars to see what people were saying and somebody had written a one star and they said, this is the best book. And I put this one star here because I know that people are going to check the one stars and I want them to know that I also think it's amazing. <laughs> and, oh, that's so clever. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, you're right. I totally checked the one stars, especially when there's only a couple. <laughs> that's <then> funny. <laughs> that's a, a nice social engineering hack. Isn't that, isn't that cute? I'll never forget that. So I won't do that until you're over 40, but I'll <laughs> appreciate that. <laughs> no, I won't do that. I won't do that. But yes, I will leave you a an honest review after I read it. Philip, been a pleasure. Um, thank you so much for coming on and spending this time with me. And good to see you. Likewise, Pia. You can grab Philip's book, The Positioning Manual for Indie Consultants, on Amazon. And if you're feeling generous, you should definitely leave him a review. Let's get his reviews up there. You can also learn more about Philip at philipmorganconsulting.com. I will link to that in the show notes. I know one big thing that I'm going to take away from our conversation today is the reminder that the excitement of uncertainty can exist in your business, and it can be exciting and not just scary. If you'll recall, I actually did a whole TED Talk about this. <laughs> I did a whole TED Talk about taking the leap to bank true confidence. And that really, at the heart of it, that's about embracing uncertainty. And while I do do it, I don't necessarily always embrace and enjoy it. I kind of do it even though it's really scary <laughs> a lot of the time. So today, I'm going to work on enjoying it more. It's a necessary part of doing the big thing for our business. It's a necessary part of going the distance and doing something you've never done before and trying something that you might not know if it works or not. At the heart of that is being okay with embracing uncertainty. And if you have to do it anyway, you might as well let go and lean into it. So that's going to be my next step to showing my business who's boss. How about you? 
Show Your Business Who's Boss is produced by Yellow House Media. Production coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode is edited by Marty Seafelt. Creative direction by Steve Wastervall. Our theme music is Glass Prisms by Western Runners. Thank you.